Today, I'm excited and humbled to welcome the lovely Darius Stewart. Darius is the author of the poetry collection Intimacies in Borrowed Light, Eastover Press 2022, and Be Not Afraid of My Body, a lyrical memoir, Belt Publishing 2024. His poems and creative nonfiction have appeared in the Arkansas Review, or Arkansas International, the Brooklyn Review, Kalaloo, the Cimarron Review, Fourth Genre, Sam Salamander, First Daily, and others. He holds an MFA, or he holds not just one MFA, but two MFAs, one in poetry and one in nonfiction, respectively, from the Mishner Center for Writers and the University of Iowa's Nonfiction Writing Program. He is currently a Lulu Johnson doctoral fellow in English at the University of Iowa, where he specializes in African-American literature and forms of the essay. Often, when editors talk of excess, they refer to the word through its negative connotation, loquaciousness, inefficiency, uninteresting fluff, cut, 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 cut. But throughout literary history, writers have wielded excess to great effect, reimagining excess in terms of bounty. With Infinite Jest, David Foster Wallace took a thousand plus pages to write about neuroticism and information overload. Don DeLillo and Thomas Pynchon, too, spent entire careers producing bricks of text in an attempt to tackle consumerism. Then there's James Augustine, Aloysius Joyce, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, George Louis Borg, John Jeremiah Smith, and so many others, often with three-part names, who've leaned into maximalism to create feelings rather than that, con that concision alone could not. Today, many writers harness excess to illustrate life's clutter, messiness like layered identities, intergenerational stories, cycles of highs and lows, um, Wikipedia overloads, or how any given town contains concurrent histories, some out in the open celebrated through plaques and statues, some buried by leaders who'd rather we forget the past. There's so many takes on excess and concision that I could go on and on, but what I'll leave you with today is that each of us in this room aren't just one thing at any given time. To be corny, I'll quote another famed maximalist, Walt Whitman, we contain multitudes. Don't just write the story you think you should write, no. Write the story only you can write in the voice closest to home. Splurge a little along the way, if you will. So, to indulge and bedazzle us today, please welcome the brilliant Darius Stewart. I did not know you were going to do that introduction, so I have, no, no, I have nothing to present now, because that was my presentation. I have, no, I have like, nothing. Uh, but no, um, you really hit on some really, really great points. Um, distinguishing between what we call maximalism and what can be considered excess. And excess is as a way to describe maximalism. But I like to think of excess as a way in which, as a writer, as someone who started out writing prose, who was confused for being a poet, who then returned to prose after practicing poetry for a while, develops my voice in that way. And one thing that I noticed is that I cannot tell a narrative story in a linear way. I just cannot do it. I have tried and I have failed. And it's because I often want to take a moment and just sit with it and just explore, you know, what can be considered the inconsequential elements of the mundane. Um, that is very, very important to me. I think that comes from being a poet, too, because as poets, we do take, you know, this kind of, you know, this macrocosm and we, you know, distill it and we reduce it to something very relatable, hopefully, <laughs> you know, but something that's very succinct. Um, and so... I started really thinking very carefully and very deliberately about <laughs> my writing and how to craft excess. Not, you know, it's fine to go, you know, willy-nilly just writing and then you just kind of just 
let yourself go. That's great. But what happens when you actually craft these moments? You know, what happens when you say, okay, I want to write about an overdose that I witnessed, right? And I'm telling the story so that the reader understands the gist of it, but at the moment that, you know, the speaker witnesses this person overdosing, the blue in the face and all of this, that's when I want to slow down and really home in on what this looks like, what it feels like before I move on. And I'm saying all this, I should have just brought it in so I could share it with you. Um, it's in um, my new book that's coming out, Be Not Afraid of My Body, so you can look for it there uh, in February 2024. 20, uh, um, but, so what I'll do, and if you have any questions whatsoever as I'm talking, I just wanted to share a few of my favorite excerpts that use excess in this really, really wonderful way. And these are all examples that when I've been write or reading these examples and others like it, I want to stop and write my own. So anytime you ever get that feeling or that urge, take that up and, and mark it down because that is telling you something about who you are as, as a writer, what your voice is telling you. I think, you know, just uh, to side note, one quick, well, no, one quick second. When people talk to me or ask me about voice, you know, it's difficult to say how to develop one's voice because I don't know. I'm not, I'm not you. I think you... No, your, your, the, the way that your body will tell you what's wrong with it, your writer sensibility, your artistic self will tell you, like, when this is what you like. You know, this is what you like to do. This is, this is, this is your style. You know, you can try to mimic whatever it is that you've been reading, but you'll feel something. You're rubbing up, you're rubbing up against something that doesn't feel quite right when you're doing this other person. And that's your, your writer voice or whatever telling you that's not you. This is what you want to do. You're borrowing from, you know, this other larger apparatus, but the thing that is you within this apparatus is telling you that. And that's the, that's the voice that, you know, develops like the voice that you need to follow. So this is, you know, using, you know, that, you know, that kind of, you know, logic um, for myself. You know, I, these examples, you know, provided me those opportunities. So you mentioned Mason... Uh, Don DeLillo, so yeah, I was going to start with Don DeLillo. So has anyone read uh, White Noise? Yeah, so love White Noise. White Noise uh, is a hilarious postmodern novel. And this first chapter really, really sets up this notion of excess, not just, you know, as a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a way to showcase a kind of stylistic um, type of excess, but he's actually talking about literal excess. So it's kind of like form and content are being married in, in this way. And that's always a wonderful opportunity to, you know, when we're writing so that things feel kind of cohesive and intentional is, you know, when something like this happens. Um, in chapter one, setting up... Um, uh, white noise. So this is the narrator uh, uh, writing. Um, the station wagons arrived at noon, a long shining line that coursed through the West Campus. In single file, they eased around the orange I-beam sculpture and moved toward the, the dormitories. The roofs of the station wagons were loaded down with carefully secured suitcases full of light and heavy clothing. With boxes of blankets, boots and shoes, stationery and books, sheets, Pillows, quilts, with rolled up rugs and sleeping bags, with bicycle skis, rucksacks, English and Western saddles, inflated rafts. As cars slowed to a crawl and stopped, students sprang out and raced to the rear doors to begin removing the objects inside. 
The stereo sets, radios, personal computers, small refrigerators, and table ranges. The cartons of phonograph records and cassettes. The, the hair dryers and styling irons. The tennis rackets, soccer balls, hockey and lacrosse sticks, bows and arrows. The controlled substances, the birth control pills and devices. The junk food still in shopping bags, onion and garlic chips, nacho thins, peanut cream patties, waffles and kabooms, fruit chews and toffee pies popcorn, the dum-dum pops, the mystic mitts. I've witnessed this spectacle every September for 21 years. It is a brilliant event, invariably. The students greet each other with comic cries and gestures of sodden collapse. Their summer has been bloated with criminal pleasures, as always. The parents stand sun-dazed near their automobiles, seeing images of themselves in every direction. The conscientious son's hands, the well-made faces and wry looks, to feel a sense of renewal, of communal recognition. The women crisp and alert and diet trim, knowing people's names. Their husbands content to measure out the time, distant but ungrudging, accomplished in parenthood. Something about them suggesting massive insurance coverage. <laughs> This assembly of station wagons, as much as anything they might do in the course of the year, more than formal liturgies or laws, tells the parents they are a collection of the like-minded and the spiritually akin, a people, a nation. I left my office and walked down the hill and, in and into town. There are houses in town with turrets and two-story porches where people sit in the shade of ancient maples. There are Greek revival and Gothic churches. There is an insane asylum with an elongated portico, ornamented dormers, and a steeply pitched roof topped by a pineapple finial. Babette and I and our children by previous marriages live at the end of a quiet street in what was once a wooded area with deep ravines. There is an expressway beyond the backyard now, well below us, and at night as we settle into our brass bed, the sparse traffic washes past, a remote and steady murmur around our sleep, as of dead souls babbling at the edge of a dream. I am chairman of the Department of Hitler Studies at the College on the Hill. I invented Hitler Studies in North America in March of 1968. It was a cold, bright day with intermittent winds out of the east. When I suggested to the chancellor that we might build a whole department around Hitler's life and work, he was quick to see the possibilities. It was an immediate and electrifying success. The chancellor went on to serve as advisor to Nixon, Ford, and Carter before his death on the ski lift in Austria. <laughs> At 4th and Elm, cars turned left for the supermarket. A policewoman crouched inside a box-like vehicle, patrols the area looking for cars, parked illegally for meter violations, lapsed inspection stickers on telephone poles all over town there are homemade signs concerning lost dogs and cats sometimes in the handwriting of a child it's gorgeous does anyone notice anything very like obvious about that what I read yeah it, to the point of it maximized in the beginning like the it over like it gave us all the sensory details and then it kind of stripped it back as we went along so like it really like hit us with the visuals and imagery and sensory detail and then started to kind of pair it back and get to the personal as it went along right right yes and also, the I am chairman of the Department of Hitler's like a sucker punch. Yeah, yes. You don't expect it. No, not at all. Any other? What about, yes? He is an element of poetry. Yes, there we go. That's what I'm looking for, yes. There's a lot of sibilance. A lot of excess happening, a lot of S's, especially. So that's very intentional, right? It has to be, right? Um, there's something else that, you know, what about the point of view? Yeah. It kind of uh, zooms in. Is, uh, it starts out wide. Yeah, right. Yeah, like he was mentioning. And what is? And so, what are we expecting, though? Like with this, you know, this ver this first paragraph, in terms of point of view. Yeah. It kind of seems like it's third person. 
Yes. Yes. Why would he start off in, you know, with the seeming third person uh, POV and then in the second paragraph we find we get the first person? Yes. It kind of establishes the environment and where we are and what time of the year it is. True, but why not just say I, you know, witnessed all of this or, you know, assume the perspective of the I up front? There might be a clue on the second page uh, where he, the author uh, mentions, uh, tells the parents they're a collection of white lions spiritually akin to people and nation. Yeah. So he's trying to cast a, a wide net. Yeah. 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 There's also this notion of there's speculation that's going on too. That is interesting to me when I read this. You know, when I first read it back, you know, 20 years ago, I guess. Um, when he says, you know, I've witnessed this spectacle every September, but then when he talks about, you know, their husbands content to measure out the time distance, you know, this is getting into the mind of another character now in a way that a first-person narrative typically isn't able to do, right? Now, as a first, as a third-person narrative, you know, narrator, you know, if that were to be the case, the way it seems that way at the beginning, that would be completely fine. You know, third person omniscient, right? But no, this is actually first person. So he's actually speculating about what must be happening with, you know, these, you know, these men, these, uh, these husbands in this case. But, you know, the clue to this, you know, that allows him, because I would have just gone on and just speculated and just be done with it. But he allows himself a lot of leeway because he says, I witnessed this spectacle every September for 21 years. So he's kind of giving himself some, the narrator is giving himself some leeway to say like, you know, and, and the reader will trust then that because he's witnessed this for 21 years, then he can get away with speculating, which I think is a form of excess, because you're going outside of the self, right? And it is, it is it's a really wonderful and shrewd move. And, it's, you know, and what he does in two pages to set up this entire novel, I think is, is, is a wonderful, you know, um, intro you know, in, in, in a very excessive way, even though we can think of it minimally in terms of percentage of the book, it's only, you know, this much. But, you know, of course, throughout the novel, he's going to return to these kinds of modes of excess. But to bring us into the novel, he does a really wonderful job um, setting that up. And I guess since we're on the subject of uh, speculation, um, No Name Woman from The Woman Warrior by Maxine Hong Kingston. Has anyone read that? Okay. So for those of you who haven't, uh, it's debatable whether or not this is, the, The Woman Warrior is a novel or a memoir. And the reason why is because there's a lot of fictional or fictive techniques that are being deployed throughout the book. Um, I want to call it a memoir. Um, and I forget the, the subtitle for the, uh, the book um, that indicates to me as such. Um, but No Name Woman is... Um, so the, the speaker is being introduced to an aunt, her, her father's sister, who had an extramarital, not affair, it's, she was raped. Um, but it was considered an extramarital affair regardless, um, it, you know, in, this, in, this time, in the time that it t- takes place. Um, and she has a child. Um, 
and and they they both you know she the aunt kills herself and the child. I'm not spoiling anything. It's here in the in the in the in the text. Um, and the the speaker's mother actually is telling her this story of her aunt that her that the speaker's father refuses you know to mention. So. The narrator wants, or speaker wants, to give voice to this aunt, and that's why we have this name, No Name Woman. So, I just wanted to start, um, just maybe, <laughs> I'll get through this one, and maybe one more, hopefully, um, but just to show you uh, of what she's doing, uh, what the narrator is doing to give this this woman um, a voice. So, um, so starting on, on this, in the second full paragraph on page eight here, she was the only daughter. This is the aunt. Her four brothers went with her father, husband, and uncles out on the road and for some years became Western men. When the goods were divided among the family, three of the brothers took land, and the youngest, my father, chose an education. After my grandparents gave their daughter away to her husband's family, they had dispensed all the adventure and all the property. They expected her alone to keep the traditional ways which her brothers, now among the barbarians, could fumble without detection. The heavy, deep-rooted women were to, re were to maintain the past against the flood, save for returning. But the rare urge West had fixed upon our family, and so my aunt crossed boundaries not delineated in space. The work of preservation, I'm sorry, preservation demands that the feelings playing about in one's guts not be turned into action. Just watch their passing like cherry blossoms. But perhaps my aunt, my forerunner, caught in a slow life, let dreams grow and fade, and after some months or years went toward what persisted. Fear at the enormities of, of the forbidden kept her desires delicate wire and bone. She looked at a man because she liked the way the hair was tucked behind his ears, or she liked the question mark line of a long torso curving at the shoulder and straight at the hip. For warm eyes or a soft voice or a slow walk, that's all. A few hairs, a line, a brightness, a sound, a pace. She gave up family. She offered us up for a charm that vanished with tiredness, a pigtail that didn't toss when the wind died. Why the wrong lighting would erase, I'm sorry, why the wrong lighting could erase the dearest thing about him. It could very well have been, however, that my aunt did not take subtle enjoyment of her friend, but a wild woman kept rollicking company. Imagining her free with sex doesn't fit, though. I don't know why, I'm sorry, I don't know any women like that, or men either. Unless I see her life branching into mine, she gives me no ancestral help. To sustain her being in love, she often worked at herself in the mirror, guessing at the colors and shapes that would interest him, changing them frequently in order to hit on the right combination. She wanted him to look back. On a farm near the sea, a woman who tended her appearance reaped a reputation for eccentricity. All the married women blunt cut their hair in flaps about their ears or pulled it back in tight buns. No nonsense. Neither style blew easily into heart-catching tangles. And at their weddings, they displayed themselves in their long hair for the last time. It brushed the backs of my knees, my mother tells me. It was braided. And even so, it brushed the backs of my knees. At the mirror, my aunt combed individuality into her bob. A bun could have been contrived to escape into black streamers blowing in the wind or in quiet wisps about her face. But only the older women in our picture album wear buns. She brushed her hair back from her forehead, tucking the flaps behind her ears. She looped a piece of thread, knotted into a circle between her index fingers and thumbs, and ran the double strand across her forehead. When she closed her fingers, as if she were making a pair of shadow geese bite, the string twisted together, catching the little hairs. Then she pulled the thread away from her skin, ripping the hairs out neatly, her eyes watering from the needles of pain, opening her fingers 
fingers, she cleaned the thread, then rolled it along her hairline and the tops of her eyebrows. My mother did the same to me and my sisters and herself. I used to believe that the expression caught by the short hairs meant a captive held with a depilatory string. It especially hurt at the temples, but my mother said we were lucky we didn't have to have our feet bound when we were seven. Sisters used to sit on their beds and cry together, she said, as their mother or their slaves removed the bandages for a few minutes each night and let the blood gush back into their veins. I hope that the man my aunt loved appreciated a smooth brow, that he wasn't just a tits and ass. As I said... You know, this is the narrator providing a kind of backstory. But how is she doing that? What do you all notice about about this? And this, and, and, and keeping in mind, this is supposed to be you know nonfiction. Would it be chaotic if I jumped in? Sure. It, I don't know the pages before this, but it kind of feels like it's not just like an action, like one action to the next. It feels kind of like the tapestry of like um, generations and culture mm. kind of weaving, weaving together, like running up to the kind of more, more of like an eye narrative mm. later in the book. That's mm-hmm. my guess. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, here and then here. Yeah. Tell me it. It's a series of scenes. Yeah. And what does that do for you? What does that mean for you? Um, makes it more vivid. Mm-hmm. And not to pick on you. Um, Repeat, please. She uh, she says it makes it more vivid. The the, the series of scenes uh, makes uh, the, the moment more vivid. Um, Actually, let me get you, and then, yeah. There's a level of detail that the narrator can't know, and no living person can know. It's, 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 all, it's all highly credible, but also, strictly speaking, it's all made up. Okay, yes, but how does she get away with it, or does she get away with it? You say it's credible, so I'm assuming that, you know, you're uh, suggesting that she gets away with it, but yeah, she she wasn't, she wasn't there. Yes. There's so much description in there, and there are just series of descriptors, and it just seems like she is telling a story, and I think she does get away with it. Mm-hmm. It's beautifully, it's like she's telling a story to someone younger or neighbors. Yes, here, here. There's a tension between the old way of doing things and a new way that she's casting judgment on mm-hmm. the last generation. Mm-hmm. The way she tells the details and the ones she chooses. That's, that's, I, I like that. That's a kind of, that's a great reader response. Um, reply, response, response. Meaning that it doesn't matter about, you know, the POV's ability to provide these kinds of details. Because as everyone else, a lot of people have been saying, it's essentially the details make a credible scene, a, a credible moment um, that is commenting on a, 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 this, this culture. Yes, ma'am. I the sense that, that deep-rooted women were to maintain the past against the flood. It's like the women's job was to keep all this information alive so it's credible because it's like they have kept it and passed it maybe the oral tradition to the point where this person who's never seen this has credibility because she's heard it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, she, she yeah. says that explicitly in a line like, my mother did the same to me and my sisters and herself. Yes. And so where we get like you get kind of softer versions of generational movement yeah. and toward the end we're getting it explicitly which makes us read this as truth because yeah. it's the heritage right she does one thing more though and this is not I have more pages we don't have time to get to the other pages so you might not may not have caught it but she's speculating right she says uh, but perhaps my aunt my forerunner. She says, it could have been that. So she does this thing called perhapsing. 
throughout this section. And that's, and that's, a, that's a real thing. That's a real tool that you can use. Like if you, if you want to write about a moment that you could not have been there for yourself, you may not have been born yet. But you have, like, the story that your mother may have told you. You have the kind of cultural milieu of, you know, being part of the culture to, to rely on. So you have all the research, uh, researchable material at your disposal, but you weren't there for it. But you want to tell this story, and you want it to be, like, a non-fictional story, though. You perhaps it. You know, perhaps this is what happened. Maybe this was this way. Imagine that this. So you want to hedge your bets, basically. Now, what she does, because she sets up the perhapsing, you don't have to keep perhapsing every single moment that's being speculated, right? You do this wonderful thing that she does, but she'll set up the speculation, and then she's given you all these, you know, we know that her mother has told her a lot of this, so she can just go with, you know, what, what she thinks would have, was the case. You know, this may have happened, right? And the reader, we should always have that in the back of, in the backs of our minds, that we don't know for certain that this happened, but as this gentleman said, it makes a credible case for it actually, you know, it, you know, it's plausibility, you know, and because she, you know, the narrator is situating herself within, you know, this entire the story, and you know, so forth. So, perhaps is a wonderful way, you know, to 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 use, you know. You know, material that you know to tell a story that you haven't—it's a true story. If you want to tell a true story, you don't necessarily have to do this in fiction, right? You don't have to go perhapsing unless you want to use that, you know, device to characterize, you know, a character. But certainly for nonfiction, you know, you 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 might want to try that. Um, and how is that excess? You know. I think because, well, it's outside, uh, it's beyond my experience. That's, that's the excess for me, that this experience is beyond me. So I'm taking this excess that I, I was not available, you know, to experience, and I'm going to use that by using a form that allows me to be excessive in how I'm describing things. Like, she creates this entire world as if she were right there. And, and, we, and, we, and we're along for the ride. Any questions about, about that? No? Okay. So, I'm going to move on to one of my favorite writers ever, Miss Gloria Naylor. Um, the Women of Brewster Place. Has anyone read The Women of Brewster Place? It's her first novel. Won the uh, American Book Award in 1983. Um, let me see if I can... Okay, I got something. I got time to read up to a certain point. Okay, so the, the Women of Rooster Place is essentially a novel in stories, a novel in seven stories, and each, you know, told from the perspective of a, of a woman living in this tenement, you know, housing project um, called Brewster Place. Um, Brewster Place is actually a character in and of itself. Um, it is a place that, you know, <laughs> dreams go to die, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, it's a terrible, terrible place. Uh, there was actually a miniseries back in the 80s, if anyone's familiar. I remember when it came out with Oprah Winfrey. And, yeah. Um, so it's, it's in brutal parts. And this particular chapter, the two is especially brutal because it involves a, a very brutal gang rape of one of the of the women. Of, actually, she's one of the two. So this is the only chapter that isn't named after 
the the woman or the women. Each every other chapter, that from the perspective of one of the women, it has her name. This one doesn't, and it's there's a reason for that. And this also comes um, in the novel. It's a very short novel. It's not even 200 pages long. But the two comes pretty much towards the end of the novel. And it's one of the longer stories. So it's about 50 pages long. Um, So there's something in terms of excess that it's doing in that regard. It's placement in the book. Like why include the, you know, basically as the penultimate, you know, story to to the main action of of the novel. Um, so I want to read a little bit and then talk about the wonderful way in which I think she's using excess to 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 tell this you know particular story. Um, at first they seemed like such nice girls. No one could remember exactly when they had moved into Brewster. It was earlier in the year before Ben was killed, of course. It had to be before Ben's death. But no one remembered if it was in the winter or spring of that year that the two had come. People often came and went on Brewster Place like a restless night's dream, moving in and out in the dark to avoid eviction notices or neighborhood bulletins about the dilapidated condition of their furnishings. So it wasn't until the two were clocked leaving in the mornings and returning in the evenings at regular intervals that it was quietly absorbed that they now claimed Brewster as home. And Brewster waited, cautiously prepared to claim them, because you never knew about young women, and obviously single at that. But when no wild music or drunken friends careened out of the corner building on weekends, and especially when no slightly eager husbands were encouraged to linger around that first floor apartment and run errands for them, a suspended sigh of relief floated around the two when they dumped their garbage, did their shopping, and headed for the morning bus. The women of Brewster had readily accepted the lighter, skinny one. There wasn't much threat to her timid, mincing walk and the slightly protruding teeth she seemed so eager to show everyone in her bell-like good mornings and evenings. Breaths were held a little longer in the direction of the short, dark one. Too pretty and too much behind. And she insisted on wearing those thin Kiana dresses that summer breeze molded against the maddening rhythm of the 20 pounds of rounded flesh that she swung steadily down the street. Through slitted eyes, the women watched their men watching her pass, knowing the bastards were praying for a wind. But since she seemed oblivious to whether these supplications went answered, their sighs settled around her shoulders too. Nice girls. And so no one even cared to remember exactly when they had moved into Brewster Place until the rumor started. It had first spread through the block like a sour odor that's only faintly perceptible and easily ignored until it starts growing in strength from the dozen mouths it had been lying in, among clammy gums and scum-coated teeth. And then it was everywhere, lining the mouths and whitening the lips of everyone as they wrinkled up their noses at its pervading smell, unable to pinpoint the source or time of its initial arrival. Sophie could. She had been there. It wasn't that the rumor had actually begun with Sophie. A rumor needs no true parent. It only needs a willing carrier. And it found one in Sophie. She had been there on one of those August evenings when the sun's absence is a mockery because the heat leaves the air so heavy it presses the naked skin down on your body to the point that a sheet becomes unbearable and sleep impossible. So most of Brewster was outside that night when the two had come in together, probably one, probably, probably from one of those air-conditioned movies downtown, and had greeted the ones who were loitering around their building. They had started up the steps when the skinny one tripped over a child's ball, and the darker one had grabbed her by the arm around, and around the waist to break her fall. Careful, don't want to lose you now. And the two of them had laughed into each other's eyes and went into the building. The smell had begun there. It outlined the image of the stumbling woman and the one who had broken her fall. Sophie and a few other women sniffed at the spot and then, perplexed, silently looked at each other. Where had they seen that before? 
They had often laughed and touched each other, held each other in joy or its dark twin, but where had they seen that before? It came to them as the scent drifted down the steps and entered the nostrils on the way to their inner mouths. They had seen that, done that with their men. That shared moment of invisible communion reserved for two and hidden from the rest of the world behind laughter or tears or a touch. In the days before babies, miscarriages, and other broken dreams, other stolen caresses in barn stalls and cotton houses, after intimate walks from church and secret kisses with boys who were now long forgotten or permanently fixed in their lives, that was where. They could almost feel the odor moving about in their mouths, and they slowly knitted themselves together and led it out into the air like a yellow mist that began to cling to the bricks on Brewster. So it got around that the 2 and 312 were that way, and they had seemed like such nice girls. Their regular exits and entrances to the block were viewed with a jaundiced eye. The quiet that rested around their door on the weekends hinted of all sorts of secret rituals, and their friendly indifference to the men on the street was an insult to the women as a brazen flaunting of unnatural ways. And I'll stop right there. It's just gorgeous, 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 and awful at the same time. What do you all notice? Or how do you respond? Yeah. Well, the first thing I noticed at the beginning was the repetition of Brewster. Yeah. The women of Brewster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, the repetition being a form of excess, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. The way she writes, you can feel the gossip. Yeah. You're there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like how, the, the you know... Just, you know, she calls it a smell. Like she personifies the gossip as a, as a as a what is it called a um, <laughs> an odor in the smell. It's a a, a, a sense. Lord have mercy. <laughs> it's a, we have senses, right? Yes, it's a sense. Yes, it's a sensory detail. Um, that's for me. That's where it really, really gets it. So, first of all, what is this about? What is, what is the rumor about? Yeah, yeah, they're a lesbian couple, right? And I will say, you know, on page one thirty-one, uh, this moment, you know, it's in the middle. That shared moment of invisible communion, reserved for two and hidden from the rest of the world behind laughter, tears, or touch. In the days before babies, miscarriages, and other broken dreams, after stolen caresses in barn stalls and cotton houses, after intimate walks from church and secret kisses with boys who were now long forgotten or permanently fixed in their lives, that was there. So the, all of that that I just read, that isn't just, you know, material that this narrator's just, you know, kind of speculating about. These are all referring to the other women in Brewster Place. So these are like kind of uh, synopsis of what these other women's like. There was a woman who had a miscarriage. There's a woman who was, you know, having an affair with a pastor thinking she was going to be able to be a pastor's wife. Uh, the main, one of the main characters, I guess, because she, you know, Maddie Mae, um, Michael's the Oprah Winfrey character, for those of you who have seen the, um, she was, you know, she had a baby as a teenager and was thrown out of the house because she was kissing in the bar and all this. So this is referring to these other women. What's interesting, though, is that even though all of the stories are told in the third person, the third person limited, though, from the perspective of the particular woman in question, except for the two, right? Who is telling their story? The other woman. Well, I mean, it says it's, it's mostly Sophie. But then it's also in the other... But she's just, like, in the part where she's talking about the rumor, she's like, she was only the carrier. And so it kind of spreads. It's everybody but the two. Mm-hmm. It's everybody but the two that it's about, even though it's supposed to be about 
is to it's everybody else yeah. that's that it's from their point of view and not them. Yes, yes. I was struck by the uh, sentence um, the regular exits and entrances of the block were viewed with a jaundiced eye mm. singular. So that solidified yeah. you have all the women become one character and then you have these two yeah. who are Right, right, exactly. So, yes, they all kind of collectively. Now, of course, as we read through the the story or this chapter, not every woman shares the same John die. Not every woman is sharing in on the gossip. You know, this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And there's also like this sense of bile. Um, I don't know if she actually uses that word, um, but you know, this this sort of like yellow mess, but certainly like the way the gums and the mouth and stuff, it's so nasty. It, it's me. It's a liver problem. Yeah, a liver problem. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and you know, and I love the, you know, word ends, you know, she quite, you know, the, the narrator talks about the um, the one, what the one of the women, one of the women that has too much behind. She's too pretty. She's flaunting, you know, herself, and 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 it's a threat to these women because they think it's going to steal their men away. But then when they realize that, oh no, that's not the case, then that's a slap in the face because they're not stealing their men. <laughs> And it's because they're lesbians, damn it, you know. And and so, you know, I guess, you know, the, the thing that I, I really think about a lot is in terms of excess, like, you know, we've talked about some of the things, you know, that is excessive in the description. But what is excessive in the positioning of this narrative, this particular narrative, within the context of the larger novel? To me, that is really a significant, you know, question. Because I'm asking myself, what is what is this author using the narrators to do in this particular story? What is the point that she is trying to make without saying it outright? I think the way that society acts upon like women's bodies and their their character without like out, it's out of their control. Mm-hmm. Using like the distance and the perspective to show that like this is the way that it impacts um, women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll see. Yes. I think those two were damned if they do and damned if they didn't because if they had been straight and, and other women's husbands had been noticing them, they would have been in trouble. But now we find out they're lesbian, and so then they're unacceptable. So they were just there was no way they were going to fit in. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yes. I find it interesting how. Uh, she's using the conceit of a rumor, which kind of starts with something really small, mm-hmm. and then it kind of gathers its own pace and kind of develops a life of its own. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, that kind of builds into that, allows for that kind of excess to actually happen. Yeah, yeah, because rumors, you know, it needs no. You know, it just needs a carrier, right? Um, but it doesn't. Also, it doesn't also need to be faithful to how it began, right? It can. It can spread however it's going to spread. That's what makes a rumor so insidious. Um, there's a critique of the ways in which women are kind of surveilled, um, but I go farther and say this is a black community of black women. Mostly, and there are black men, and unfortunately, Gloria Naylor caught a lot of flack for the way she uh, portrayed uh, black men in in this novel. To the point where she actually wrote another novel called *The Men of Brewster Place*, which I thought was absolutely <laughs> unnecessary because um, that's just the way you know. That's you know, but. 
for me, you know, there's, you know, within the black community, you know, notions of gender and sexuality are heavily circumscribed in really, you know, socially conservative black communities. Um, so she, in, 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 and in in, as a symptom of white supremacy. So their socioeconomic status has placed them in Brewster Place. This dead end is it's actually a dead end community. Like there's a brick, you know, wall that's, that they have, they tear down. You know, to to symbolically, you know, escape, you know, you know, into you know the world beyond those walls. Um, but within this particular community, it's like you know, Naylor is showing how the worst of white supremacy and its oppressive, you know. Uh, it, the way it can oppress a community, what manifests from that? What becomes, you know, um, what, what comes up, what shows the, you know, the moral compass of, of a community or what they perceive to be the moral compass? What are the ethics um, of this particular community that is so subjugated? Um, so that's, you know, so some of the worst things that can happen to you know, to people happen to them in Brewster Place, and some of the things about people that you know, just the natural born ways in which you know we go about you know living, such as our sexuality, becomes something that is here unnatural, but it's also you know it is a critique of the ways in which these certain communities review. Not that all black communities view you know, homosexuality as unnatural. But in this circumstance, you know, it is seen as unnatural. The way these men behave that Gloria Naylor was so obscurated for, excoriated for, they behave that way because of the conditions in which they are forced to live. And so by taking the two and placing it Almost as the climax, because you know we say that Ben died. Ben is the custodian of Brewster Place, um, so he ends up dying as a result of of the rape. Actually, in a very ironic you know way, he's a collateral consequence of you know of of this you know this this rumor that has then compelled these men to act in this very violent way um, against, against these, these women. Um, but anyway, that's all the time that I have. Um, <laughs> thank you, Darius. This has been Thank you. incredibly wonderful.